0: When we come in and create a brand, we're not making it, we're extracting it, and we're making it so that it can be repeated over and over again so that it can become big and amplify and have scale.
1: Hey there, Powderkeg fans. Welcome to Episode 73 of Powderkeg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies and communities outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and I'm really excited for today's show because I get to introduce you to one of the leading experts in one of the most important elements of any company, your brand and more specifically, your employer brand. And we'll talk a little bit more about what we mean by employer brand in just a minute. It's with one of the best branding agencies in the country, the largest full-service marketing agency in Indiana, Element3. And we have founder and CEO Tiffany Sauter here, on the podcast today. Tiffany, thanks so much for being here.
0: Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'm pumped.
1: We are really excited to have you. I, I'm going to gush on you here just a little bit, give a little bit of high level on your background. It's hard to pick just a few things. Um, so I actually had Meg do this because I was looking at your bio and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to leave anything out. So if anything gets left out, it's Meg's fault. This
0: is so stressful. I um, hate
1: this. Tiffany, you founded <laughs> Element 3 in 2006. You've grown the company into the largest full-service marketing agency in Indiana. Congratulations! Uh, Recognized as Inc. 5,000 uh, fastest-growing company for the last five consecutive years. That's amazing. Um, You coach companies across the country on how to tell bold stories, and to top it all off, you're a mom of three daughters. And we were just talking about your amazing smoothie recipes.
0: Yes. And, the aspiring chef. That's right.
1: (laughs) Nice. Nice. I like it. Well, maybe we'll get to that today. Um, but I would really like to talk to you just a little bit about where were you in 2006, uh, when you decided to start element three, how did you get to this moment in time when you decided I'm going to start uh, a branding and marketing agency?
0: Well, I don't know if you've had those things in life that like you kind of look back and they picked you more than you picked it. Um, I grew up in a like real crazy entrepreneurial home. My dad has never worked for anyone else a day in his life, which is was very normal to me growing up. But now as an adult, I look back at that and think that's pretty crazy.
1: It's a little different. What was his business?
0: Uh, so he farmed when I was little. And then when I was in third grade, he started a pallet company like, you know, that used fork trucks to move inventory and And now hipsters make
1: furniture out of
0: yeah precisely and barn doors and all that kind of stuff um and so he grew that to be the largest east of the mississippi primarily focused on pharmaceutical and um food so if you think about those industries they're fairly inelastic in demand so he was real strategic about that so i grew up doing businessy things. People talk about like my dad threw baseballs with me or, you know, and my, like my dad taught us financial literacy. We started companies when we were like sixth and seventh grade. Did you enjoy it? We loved it. We sold mulch on the roadside was our first business. So if you think about, you know, pallets, it makes a bunch of scrap wood. And so they would grind that into a like consistent mix and then color it.
1: Do you remember some of the biggest lessons you learned from selling mulch? Uh, mulch on the side of the road.
0: Well, honestly, the biggest one that has carried through is that I was in, I think seventh grade and my sister was in fifth when we started it and everybody thought we were too little to do it. Really? And so like farmers, cause we lived in a rural environment, farmers would come with their pickup trucks and we were driving a Bobcat and they would be like, you know, Hey honey, you want me to do that for you? And we were like, no, dad won't let other people drive it. <laughs> and so then we would do it and we would load it. And I think that from a young age, the idea of, like, creating credibility and, and owning your space before somebody else would give it to you, I think that's one of the – like, of course, there was all the financial things and he made us, like, file our own taxes and all this kind of stuff. But I think being able to handle yourself and be able to, like, own your space because everybody thought we were too little. and But we never hit – like, never once did we hit a pickup truck. Never once did we, like – mess something up yeah. and so I think that if I look back and take one really big thing away and it's, I mean I was 24 25 year old 25 years old when I started element three and nobody thought that I should mm-hmm. and I think that that sort of internal moxie is a real part of being an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Which you've, I mean, you've seen that too. Well,
1: I, I, I certainly, uh, haven't had an Inc 5000 fastest growing company five years in a row. So a different level of moxie maybe, but, uh, that's why you're in here today. I'm really excited to learn from you. Um, and I'm even learning from young Tiffany right now, which is (laughs) awesome. So own your space. How, how would you own your space, uh, when you were selling mulch by the side of the road?
0: Well, I, I mean, we had to market it and and um, you know create relationships with the grocer and make sure that he was willing for you know for us to put our stuff there and at the post office, you know, sort of centers of gravity of where in small towns where people are at and where things are at. And then just like today, while there weren't online reviews and you know, oh my word, so long ago, ninety three, um, there were still reviews, word of mouth, and your reputation. All was really important, and so. You know, we, we grew into kind of a little big deal and we, you know, as kids we'd make six, seven, eight grand a summer, which was like killing. Oh yeah. You know? So um
1: Did you save your money or did you spend it?
0: Okay, so I would spend <laughs> mine and my sister would save hers. And then I would like kind of get some of hers too somehow because I was older.
1: <laughs> <laughs> True <laughs> um, entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I I think today too, like I am very much Um, I'm a growth oriented entrepreneur. So the idea of like kind of putting my chips all back on the table is a real easy thing for me, Mm -hmm. like betting on tomorrow. And, um, and then so I have to surround myself with people who are thoughtful savers or, or a little bit more constrained and making sure I'm being judicious. But even then I'd be like, yeah, let's throw it all back in inventory. Let's get four more colors or let's get three more loads and see if we can sell through it. Um, and I see that today too in my energy of like, yeah, like, let's see, let's throw it all back in. Let's see what we can do with it.
1: I love it. <laughs> so take me back to 2006. Where did the idea come from?
0: Um, so it wasn't so much an idea. I right out of, I went to Craner. I got a degree in finance at um, Purdue. At Purdue yep. yep. And, um, I was a small town kid with like big city dreams. And so the idea of you know, coming to Indianapolis, which is a really big city to me in that time, and getting a job at a place like Lilly or a big company in a business card was just something that I was like, there's just no way that will happen to me. Um, But I, before my senior year, I got an internship at Lilly and then got an offer. And um, it was awesome. And I loved it. But what I realized is that like all things, the grass is not not always greener on the other side. And I had an amazing experience. And Lily's an incredible company. And big companies know how to teach dumb kids things. You know, they have the resources <laughs> to train. Yeah.
1: You this, weren't a very dumb kid, though. No,
0: but you don't know how to work. Like, And sure. I think small com- I, I would encourage my kids, go work for a big company. They have the infrastructure to teach you. Mm-hmm. Where small companies don't always sure. um, have the infrastructure to teach and train. So an awesome experience, but I realized this is a regulated environment, and, of, and I I had only been around small business for the most part, and so I didn't understand the sort of heaviness of bureaucracy. And I don't really all mean that. I think we use that in a negative sense a lot. There's just a lot of order in a big company. And I was used to, like, going with like obvious decisions, and in a big company, it's difficult to get things done in any kind of agile way because for good purpose, there's order to decision-making, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't scale if it's crazy. It sounds like
1: you've been talking to Meg on my team. (laughs)
0: But in a regulated environment, on top of that, the FDA has to approve a change. So the idea of using just like common sense doesn't translate quickly. And again, for good reason. I'm not like ragging on it, sure. but I just realized this doesn't fit my energy. I, I'm super experiential in the way that I learn. Um, because I grew up in an entrepreneurial home, failure was not really a big deal. So um, anyway, so f- from that, I realized I kind of need to do something else. My dad had just had me read the book. Um, uh, oh my word, I just blanked on it. The E-Myth. Yeah.
1: That was one of the like gateway books for me. Yeah. Okay. Same. Yeah. 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 It, it's taught very heavily at, uh, Kelly school of business okay. in their entrepreneurship program. And so I read that book my, uh, sophomore year after I transferred from Purdue and, uh, that it just changed my life. Started a company that summer. Yeah. So what was your big takeaway
0: from it? And then I'll say mine
1: work on the business, not in the business.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so I basically bought a very tiny company from people who only knew how to work in the business. Gotcha. Um, and it was a husband and wife team. Um, like most, they just kind of hit their ceiling pretty early. There was not quite enough money to go around. Yeah. Everybody was a little bit frustrated.
1: What was the business?
0: The, it was the precursor to Element 3. Really? So a little design shop. There okay. was maybe four people, a couple freelancers, and a cat that puked. Um,
1: you inherited the cat, too? Yeah. really. To my
0: chagrin. I'm just <laughs> am not a pet person. Um, uh, as an aside, I think there are people people, pet people, and plant people.
1: Interesting. And I am
0: a people people.
1: I don't know which I am. I like all of those you things. You do? Even I, plants? Yeah. Oh. I can't take care of them for anything. Okay, see, but that's what I'm saying. It's not I a like priority, them.
0: but it's not a priority. No. Same. No. So I like plants. I think they're pretty. I'm glad I live in a world where they exist, but I'm not going to spend my energy caring for them. Sure. I'd rather put it towards a people. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, so I still
1: don't know which one I am because I, I love Hank. Do you have, my dog. You have a yeah. dog.
0: Do you yeah. go home at lunch to like do things for him? No. Oh, see? I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> if i need to yeah then you would if i need to i will but yeah no
0: um okay so i think i'm a people people i'm a people people yeah uh anyways i've met pet people first people
1: yeah yeah oh for sure <laughs> yes everyone knows that there are oh, those yeah. yeah who those are yeah
0: so anyway i had, my dad had me read the e-myth i realized that um, there's people who have businesses that really never were meant to have businesses, not because they're not smart, it's just not their skill set. I ran into this husband and wife team, to make a long story short, and I just felt the sense that I was supposed to kind of take a run at buying this thing. It was worth nothing. They had about $300,000 in revenue, they had a small loan that they owed to one of their parents. I talked to my dad, and I was like, hey, I kind of think we should buy this company. He had some other investments that could benefit from marketing. Um, and so it wasn't like we were buying something completely unrelated to the world. So for $30,000, we assumed their debt. Wow. And it was, ta-da, that was the quote-unquote transaction. So wow. at a couple of months before my 25th birthday, we'd bought this company. Um, and I actually wasn't the president at the beginning. I was just going to work there. And then about a year in, I went and talked to my dad, not to pitch him on me being president, but I was just like, I have some concerns. I think maybe you should investigate. And he was like, sounds like you know what to do. Why don't you just run it? And so that was, you know, that's a different podcast about how do you take over from founders. Um, They were 20 years my senior. I didn't know marketing, really. And so that, you know, kind of created a a transition of sorts. So how do you
1: have the confidence to step into that role and... I mean, yeah. it sounds like you had an amazing support system behind you with your dad, uh, your whole family history yeah. of entrepreneurship to allow you that opportunity to step into that. And then when, once you had the opportunity, yeah. clearly you've taken full advantage of it well, with I, the growth I, that you've seen. I've
0: stepped into it, but I, you know this too. There's people, you don't get here by yourself. And it's the idea of like, I would have quit on my own. Yeah. I, I like, sure. I. I actually didn't have what it took, but somebody believed in me enough to push me through into my potential, but I, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you feel that same way. Like, yeah.
1: Who, who, uh, who are some of those so there's, guides along the way?
0: There's three people. One is certainly my dad. He's n- notorious for saying the end is only the end if you want it to be the end. Um, I like that. And it's actually it's true. so true. He's yeah. like, it's just the end because people stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, in, in startups and funded startups, it's the same thing. Yeah. You've only... F- failed once you quit working on the yeah, project
0: once you decide it's the end and
1: uh, you know in a world where failure is sometimes glorified mm-hmm. on the negative end of the spectrum but also like as long as you're learning something from that failure and taking it into the next thing mm-hmm. um, kind of going back to your point around uh, not being afraid to fail mm-hmm. it's such an important uh, aspect of this entrepreneurial journey totally yeah right? so your dad and so my and dad you the second you?
0: one um so marcia stone she worked with me for about Ten years, and we're going to start talking about brand. And she's really my, uh, the person who taught me brand from the practitioner's perspective. Mm. I think the things we do in marketing often are not learned in the classroom.
1: Yeah,
0: you really have to. It's almost like an apprenticeship of sorts.
1: Absolutely. Um, and what was so her background,
0: she was, um, one of the fanciest titles she had was the North American Creative Director of what was then Bates Worldwide. Oh wow! So she basically flew all over the country and. Um, helped their creative shops across the country, like inspire creativity and have the best ideation practices, all that kind of stuff. But she worked on brands like Mercedes Benz and Jeep and Archway Cookies and Harley Davidson and all these sort of iconic, awesome brands. And she studied with um, some really big brand thinkers out of Europe and just did some really cool stuff. So she was here in Indianapolis because her husband is a tenured professor at State and architecture program, which is a really big deal apparently. Yeah, huge. And so here she finds herself, you know, kind of in her mind a country bumpkin, and what I see is the big city. And uh, we find each other. I'm about 26, 27 years old. She just stepped away from big agency world.
1: How did you find each other?
0: We we kind of got networked to one another. So the truth of the matter is, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I was running this agency, and I didn't know the words of the. I didn't know. I didn't know the words. So I knew I needed to find a mentor. And so she she and I met on Friday afternoons in um, uh, Broad Ripple for about six months. And I would bring to her like the things I saw, the things I'd heard, questions I had. And it was a place for me to just be like super vulnerable with my stupidity. And she taught me the business and she taught me the things and she taught me how it all worked. And I think she saw in me that my brain was like a quick study. She just had to tell me once. And so then about six to nine months into her mentoring me she's like hey I'm kind of tired of being on my own what would you think about me coming to work for you and like my face exploded I was like you gotta be (laughs) kidding me so we probably worked on about 100 brand projects together wow um over the course of I don't know maybe seven or eight years and she really taught me the practice of it but the combination of the discipline of the research and also the intuition of how you find the answer and um, so Marsha was one, and then this, the third one I would say is a gentleman. His name is Tony Rice, um, and he was one of my really early big company clients. Hmm. He was a guy who he and a leadership team ran several different companies for a private equity group. You know, they were kind of like they would kamikaze in for five years and turn around and you know move on to the next one. Yep. And he trusted me and my team with some really big, huge, like high stakes projects, and I remember being like we do not have any credibility that we can pull this off, but he just sees that we can. And so you kind of need somebody to give you a shot bigger than you deserve. And he just saw that we could, even though we'd never demonstrated we could, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I think people who just saw patterns of thinking and a sense of personal ownership to delivering um, that took bets on me that were big and unnecessary and, un- and warranted in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but gave me a chance to kind of like ladder up.
1: So I want to I want to dive into the brand practice a little bit. Yeah. Um, six months of Fridays in Broad Ripple uh, sound like a really great six months, uh, first of all, especially if you're talking brand with mm-hmm. someone with as much experience as uh, that mentor did. Uh, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned uh, just in those early conversations in learning the practice of branding?
0: Well, I think that... Um, I think what you have to figure out when you're a brand thinker and and helping to create strategies is how do you strike the balance between how much is rooted in the truth of today for that company and how much is like betting on the future of tomorrow and what they want the company to become or the Hmm. market they want it to enter. Hmm. So I think that's certainly one.
1: Talk to me more about that. How would um, a startup, for instance, that's, uh, let's say they just hit product market fit. They just raised their seed round of funding. How do they uh, strike that balance between what's rooted in the present and what the the future could be?
0: Well, I think that what you have to make sure you're doing is that the the brand at its best is actually almost wholly unrelated to the product, <laughs> and getting past the thing you sell. And saying, whether we're a soup kitchen or we're a technology company, and I'm being a little extreme to make the point, um, we the, the, we found the nucleus of who we are. And this, at its values, its core, its more, a, this is what we're about. And so that might look like something like um, customer obsession. Hmm. Let's say that that's what the brand is about. Well, we can demonstrate that to different markets through a product that we bring them. But if we are customer obsessed obsessed we may think about what are the um an application might be what are the frustrations that people have when they're trying to buy the thing we sell them and how do we make the comparison process easier for them i know technology is big on the like little checkbox thing but sure um that would be one encouragement the the other thing that i would say that Marsha taught me is that when you're going through research for as long as you possibly can suspend conclusion and and try to look at the data purely hmm. and i would i would ask her like what do you see and what do you think like as research is coming in and she's like i don't know yet i don't know yet i don't know yet and i would get so bugged but what she was able to do inside her like brain is create the discipline of i want to look at each piece of information as if it's the first thing i'm seeing hmm. first
1: that's discipline,
0: and then you step back and start to say, "Now, what are the patterns I'm seeing?" But often in research, particularly qualitative research, which is uh, maybe you want to talk about that, maybe not. That's my bias for brand is that qualitative research sure. focus is focus groups,
1: interviews.
0: Yeah, I think quantitative research can get a little dicey, but it also has its place. But yeah, qualitative research is that you can start, you can start um, forcing conclusion before you've looked through the entire data set. And she just had profound discipline in that.
1: Mm. And, and in terms of, uh, let's say you're, you're starting to see some patterns emerge, um, or maybe you're not supposed to see patterns emerge based on what you're saying is suspend, uh, conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say you've looked at enough. I'm mm-hmm. using air quotes right yeah. now. This is not a video podcast. Um, let's say you've looked at enough. And you start to get a feel for at least directionally where you want to go. I know that there are some brand marketers that are sort of like, until you've got kind of like your brand lens, don't touch the brand, don't do anything to it. Whereas in the startup world, a lot of times there's this sort of like iterative nature Mm -hmm. to brand where it's sort of like, you know, company will raise a million bucks, two million bucks uh, on pursuing a problem and really to start like that problem is their brand we're solving this problem Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like directionally where they're going Mm -hmm. but it's not quite you know we are customer obsessed even I mean that would be very specific Mm -hmm. it's more like we're building products to solve this problem there's sort of probably a gray in between but how do you sort of like find that balance between the, the sort of like more traditional, like if you watch Mad Men and it's mm-hmm. sort of like the big reveal, this is how we're going to talk about everything versus in the startup world where you don't really even know what the product is yeah. because you don't have full product market fit, mm-hmm. but brand is still important. Mm-hmm. Uh, h- how do you talk to entrepreneurs who are in it? It doesn't have to be startup. It could even be at more of a scaling stage company. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to them about brand and uh, suspending conclusion.
0: Yeah. There is definitely a place in time where it's too early to go through a formal brand exercise Okay, and, and you should feel, com- you know, if someone is listening to this and they're really at startup ground zero trying to figure out product market fit and grinding through that process, making it up is totally fine. <laughs> and, and you are, and this is what
1: using I, intuition.
0: Yeah. Cause you're not, you're, <clears throat> I always say, who's the closest person on the planet to the answer? Probably you you know you the person who's got this idea their investors hope so yeah you the person who's you know imagining that this thing is going to solve a problem in the marketplace that people may or may not be noticing right now and so somebody's got to be like i'm the one closest to the answer in on the planet and so i'm just going to pick it and it is iterative and it you and that's okay i think that the place i see startups go wrong is that just because you want it to be the answer doesn't mean that it is and make sure that it's authentic to the thing you can be and deliver mm. and i think in an age of a lot of just social pressure of you know the way social media plays up what tech companies should be or tech leaders or even advertising or women in business or young people in business or like make sure it's like actually your jam and that would be the thing that I would Hmm. just continue to, especially when you know that you're kind of faking it to make it because you're just scrapping everything together. It is really tempting to become a chameleon to what you think the thing needs you to be. Hmm. Um, And that it just won't last.
1: How do you stay on path?
0: Well, I think if it's true, it's easier, you know, I mean, maybe that's such the like obvious answer. Um, But I also think there's always this tension between the product um, the, and the, uh, maybe I, maybe this is said a better way, the um, scale and inertia behind a business growth and the brand staying on pace with one another. It yeah. seems like the brand is either a little ahead or a little behind. and And that, I guess, again, I would just say looking at, know, hundreds of companies, that's a normal thing. And nobody is able to kind of keep perfect tension across that growth. I'm also using my hands right now to try to explain (laughs) this to Matt. Um, Nobody's able to keep perfect tension in that string, you know, as you kind of go up the growth curve. Um, And that's pretty normal. I'll add this. One of the biggest things I actually see founders, leaders struggle with, it's there's like three steps. One is defining the thing. What is the brand? And, and they're actually, I would I would say like they're decent at that. Mm. The thing they really suck at, and this is what I think the brand process helps tease out, is how do you say it in a way that people understand it and the message can scale? And so I think if I'm really honest with myself about what these big formal brand projects bring to the table, it's not usually a surprise. Mm. It's a tool of like, that's what I've been trying to say. And it gives us a platform and information to be able to help that leader or that leadership team or that you know product team be able to say, now, how do you weave this through everything so that you make it more true? Because it's already true. Right. When we come in and create a brand, we're not making it, we're extracting it. And we're making it so that it can be repeated over and over again so that it can become big and amplify and have scale. And so I think maybe my brain is connecting back to your original question, which is like if you're small and agile and nimble and you don't have the resources and you're still trying to figure it out. Well, it's easier to kind of keep that nucleus close because you are both creating and executing almost in the same motion it's that when it gets bigger, that gets so hard and that dissonance starts to create a lot of problems for cultures and organizations and markets and industry, all those kinds of things.
1: What, what is like minimum viable brand lens? Like what would you suggest even even a startup have at least mm-hmm. documented and not necessarily a formal branding process, but maybe a, a formal branding process yeah. to kind of say uh, every company should have at least... Like what's the, you know, what is it? Is it the one word that you would associate with that company and uh, the three ways that they? Uh, what what are sort of yeah. those like building blocks?
0: So that's a great question. I haven't thought about it that way before, but I will uh, work to answer it. I think we'll, one we'll
1: make up the acronym because startups love okay. Acron- that's M- such a MVB good idea. minimum viable brand. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's a great idea. That's a white paper. <laughs> um, so I think one is definitely your values. Um, that is a core piece. Yeah, and if you don't know how to say those, recruit like your closest people to extract to you what they see and experience. So values, um, who you believe your target customer is, and a composite of the things competing for their time and money, not just the thing you're selling them. I think that's a uh, sometimes a blind spot I see people make is they yeah. think the only thing occupying the brain space is the thing they're selling this customer. Um and then the third one that I would say is a, is a mood board. Like mm. go to, you know, half price books and buy a bunch of magazines and get out your paste and scissors and a big piece of poster board and pull out the imagery, the language, the words that you want your brand to feel like. And when you think about it being its best self, like what clothes is it going to wear? And that starts to create at least aligned inspiration for people who are making for your brand. And that could be sales pitch language, your PowerPoints, onboarding materials for employees or an ad in a, you know, at a trade show. It can uh, suspend across all those things. But attitudinally, how do you want this thing to show up? Hmm. That would be that would be the other piece.
1: I love that. Mood board. Mm -hmm, We don't have a mood board at Powder Keg yet. Well, maybe we'll do that. I know what I'm doing tomorrow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Send me a picture. (laughs) Yeah, totally.
1: I will totally send you the picture of our mood board. Um, But you know
0: what you want it to feel like, of course. Yeah, Yeah. it's intuitive, and so that's what founders have to do: is how do I take what's intuitive to me and make it so others can participate in it? Yeah. And that is really what the brand process is all about. We want to take what intuitively our consumers wanting from you. Mm-hmm. What do you intuitively want to make in the world as a founder that that 's really what the pro, the process does
1: I love that i'm, I'm excited to do it um, i 'm going to get messy this weekend um, let 's transition a little bit and get a little bit more specific with brand because there's obviously a, a, an emerging opportunity particularly in tech around employer brand because uh, recruiting is quickly becoming, if, if not already is, the number one issue for tech companies. In fact, when we did the U.S. tech census in 2018, across all of the cities we surveyed, thousands of people in these tech communities, we found that the number one pain point at these companies is retaining and recruiting the right talent to help them grow and scale. And they just can't do it fast enough. It's expensive. It's hard to find the right culture fit, going back to values. And employer branding, I know, is a tool. An employer brand can be a tool to help attract and retain that right talent. When did you start to see that sort of theme emerge around employer brand? And how do you even define employer brand internally at Element 3?
0: Yeah, so I think that that would be another one of those situations where like, it kind of found us. We started to find about three years after we created corporate brands that the HR team or the leadership team would come back around and say, hey, um, we're starting to see that there's an application for this. How do we take this market message and start to make it relevant internally? Um, and so we started to understand, we started to look at, well, how does the process map to that? How do we make sure the core components? And and, and I think it's the exact same thing, but how we, we think about it is that, you know, we want to make sure that we are certainly representing the best of that company in who they are and what they can give their employee. Um, But the other thing that we're doing is that we're articulating it so that it can be repeated and not just those who connect to the CEO get charged up in goosebumps by the cause, but also the midline directors and the managers and and are all speaking the same thing and understand what the ethos of the whole place is about. Hmm. Um, And I think that what employees want today that especially I don't know how much this plays in the tech space but when I see look at more traditional corporations that are run and led by kind of past generations the idea of a defined purpose yeah. and it being much bigger than the thing you're making is something that you know the new employee generation is really asking for um
1: definitely true at at tech companies large and small
0: and so i actually think the challenge is how does this idea of purpose n- not become so benign that they all sound the same? Because just like integrity used to be a corporate value, and now we roll <laughs> our eyes, I think we we run the risk of some of that with this sort of purpose language that it's like, we want to change the world. And how do we be really specific and pointed about that? Um, and the other thing I really encourage people to think about, it's about more than just giving back, right? The like altruism of it is important. But but it's bigger than just corporate social responsibility. It's gotta be more specific than that.
1: So I totally buy into the idea of employer brand and employer branding. Let's take a step back and say, maybe I'm not, maybe I just bought into the idea Mm -hmm. of it. Where do I start in terms of creating an employer brand strategy? If I wanna retain my talent while also uh, creating a magnet to attract more of the right kind of people, Where do I even start with a strategy? Mm -hmm. What's the first step?
0: Yeah, I think that it's making sure that first the leadership team is aligned to seeing it all the way through. Mm. And I would, uh, one of the things when we are in like the sales process for this is if I'm working with somebody on HR and talent is to say, you need to make sure that your CEO is not only just politically on board with this, but is willing to spend money on it. Because it's not enough to come up with the answer, you have to continually fund this. Yeah. Otherwise, you get a really big black eye and and companies aren't used to spending money on this yet if we're really honest with ourselves there's invisible money being spent against it in the turnover and employee loss and you know we know intuitively it's expensive when stuff turn when people turn over, sure. but it doesn't show up necessarily as a line item on our p and l you know right um, so one is to make sure that you're you're like your heart is really into it and that you're willing to spend money and sort of see it through. The other is to start with a baseline. Where are you right now? And I know Powderkeg is thinking hard about this of, you know, what does engagement look like in our employee base? Where are we? And what are the things that our employees would say we're doing a good job and a bad job at from a leadership and culture perspective? I think there's such tight symbiotic relationship between culture and leadership. Um, and so that would be the next thing I would do is make sure that you have a decent baseline Mm -hmm. and then it goes, really looks at how do we create some real answers to who are we and what do we want it to feel like and look like to be an employee here and not just task orientation, but the core of it, what do we want to attract?
1: So it's sort of the same thing as with the brand. You figure out what you've got. You're just trying to figure out what is the one
0: yeah, what, core what guiding could, light. What are you going to do better than anybody else? And that—that's where it's like you got to be able to like ship against that. Like you have to be able to really do it in a crescendoed way that nobody else is going to do that. Hmm. Um, in, in our world, Element Three's sort of core why is about writing bold stories, and. I talked a little bit in the earlier, like the people who have given me opportunities to do things I just straight up wasn't ready for is what gave me a results, not typical life. Right. Yeah. And not everybody is born into an entrepreneurial family with a dad who's a little bit crazy. And so to be able to create an environment where people can come and they can live a, a bold thing. And that might not look like running a company for them, but being totally cool. If they have side hustles, like in allowing them to bring that into our environment and not with secrecy, but to say like, that's so cool. Like, what do you, what are you working on? Because I think the more they're pursuing, the better they're going to be for me too.
1: I loved your, uh, I was in the element three offices last time and I loved your, um, like the bathroom minutes, oh, yeah. that, that are there. I, I don't. I can't remember what the information name dump. Yeah, the information dump. I remember it was good branding. I yeah. was like, man, that's uh-huh. good. Uh-huh. I I just love it's that. The
0: shit you should know.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh-huh. I absolutely love that. Um, it, it was just clear that like your team kind of took that on in, as an initiative. It's totally. not, probably not a KPI driven no. activity. No. Um, but I, I I just got a taste for the culture yep. just being uh being in the restroom for a minute.
0: Yeah, and so that like initiative of like ask for forgiveness and not permission is totally part of our culture and we reward that all over the place so that's an idea of writing a bold story like step out and do the thing and if it doesn't work it's okay nobody's gonna be mad so that that's what i mean and the last thing the last step of that is like just like we create branding elements and tribal norms and things for people to grab hold on and put stickers on their laptop covers for external brands. We have to do that same thing for internal brands. And we have to make icons. You know, we have the silly elephant and we call ourselves E3ers. But it creates a sense of like team. And if you look at collegiate environments or, you know, uh, athletic you know, professional teams, there is a psychology to colors and mascots and cheers that activates the human soul. And we have to look to that as inspiration as we build internal cultures because people will you know paint their bodies and grown ups do crazy things to, to be a fan. And we want to root for something as people. We want to be part of something that matters and we want to know that we contribute to that thing being positive and that thing winning. And so as employees, employers, we have to see ourselves as being team makers in a way that I don't think we've totally had to do in the past.
1: I, I love that, and we've had uh, Alexis Ohanian, the co-founder of Reddit, uh, at one of our events here in Indianapolis a few years ago. And one of the things uh, that he wrote about in his book was just every one of his uh, companies that he's had. He, one of the first things he does is he creates a mascot for it. So it's at Hipmunk, it's the Hipmunk Chipmunk at Reddit, it's the Reddit Alien, and then he's like, you know, you're really onto something when people are like tattooing mm-hmm. like people that you don't even know. Are tattooing your mascot like on their forearm or on their chest or on their back, um, and that always stuck with me. As uh, y- you know, of course, in the startup world, it's wear the startup tee. You see your startup tee out in the wild. You know people are are repping your brand very much like a a sports team mm-hmm. would. Um, but I love that idea of a mascot. We don't have a mascot yet at, at Powder Keg, but we do make jokes that that Casey should dress up as a giant keg, like a powder keg uh, at one of our events, but, uh, we haven't gone quite that far yet because it hasn't really gone through any sort of process to vet that yet. Um, but in, in terms of that, uh, moving in that direction of sports team and leading a team with an employer brand and employer brand strategy, um, what are sort of those next steps to kind of uh bring it to life. So you've you've gotten a baseline, you've sort of identified and pulled out maybe those core elements. And and you've already talked about some of those ways you could can bring them to life. Um but you talked about this being a long term investment. Mm-hmm. What are the best companies do really, really well once they've defined their employer brand?
0: They teach it and train it. Like mm-hmm. it's the most important thing for anybody to know. Mm-hmm. Um I think that incorporating it into your employee onboarding and um, one of the things, I feel like I'm wrapping E3, which is not my goal, but one of the things that we've done that has been really successful is all new hires meet with me for an hour to hear the history of the company and where the brand came from Mm. um, and to understand the stories that built our values and keeping that why alive helps bring a whole different sense of understanding to people instead of just memorizing it so that would be one teach all new employees because they're fresh and excited and want to like be superheroes for you
1: and I, I, I love that you're using your own examples so please okay. m- more examples would be great
0: okay so that would be one the other thing that um, I would do is make sure that as you promote managers and directors into it that they understand how to take all performance feedback and how to get people to be better at their jobs, tie it back to your values. Hmm. Because whatever is happening in their jobs, and I'll, I'll use an example, Element 3, we do lots of projects, right? People pay us money to do things that we spend time on. And one of our values is business first, which means understand the business impact of your decisions. And midway through a project, we took some resources off, we put new ones on, and I sat down and I said, hey, I'm super frustrated with this because you violated a business-first value. Do you understand about 50% of this project's profit was just eaten up in that one-second decision that you made to swap these out? So, I mean, every single time you're frustrated as a leader, it's because there's a value that was violated.
1: If you did a good job setting your values.
0: yeah, Yeah, I mean, awesome Come standard is another one. So if you just totally laid an egg in front of a client and you didn't prepare, you mismanaged your time, you did not show up awesome come standard and we need to talk about that. So that would be another activate around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another idea that I have is that um, make a peer recognition program where your people are taking hold of the value so that it's not just coming top down and making sure that you're publishing the usage or being – Um, kind of randomized in the way that you select which ones are featured so that people understand you're watching all of that and then that that when you can kind of help create a current it starts to really catch hold and like you said the information dump was not something that we it was not an executive idea it was not and you know two-thirds of what's on there is not true (laughs) which is just spectacularly hilarious um but transparency is a big, is a value of ours. And so obviously like truth and jest all the time. So most of the jokes in there are like rooted in some kind of like, everybody's been dying to say that, but nobody had the guts to kind of thing. I love it. Um, so that would be the third one. So teach it to new hires, train it to your leaders and reward and give your people a chance to reward and recognize one another through the lens of your values and your brand.
1: What are some of the companies that have done a remarkable job of building a great employer brand like what are some of your f- favorites that you love and, and they don't even need to be past clients but yeah just ones that you've seen just do an amazing
0: I, i'm a godfather for me in this space is hubspot yeah. um I, I just think that katie burke has done an incredible job of everything from inclusion and diversity to sort of being really proactive from a uh, the way that she promotes women in business, and just how authentically engaged that leadership team is in their culture. Um, I, I just think they do a world-class job. It's just really not forced because it's really real. Um, so that would be one that I would look at. And there's, I mean, if you look at some of the, I mean, gigantic consulting firms like Accenture, mm. I mean, they have, I mean, that once somebody on their in their C-suite, their entire job is the employee experience. And they think really hard about everything from recruiting all the way to through alumni engagement. Um, and I mean, they're just like they're world-class at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are great ones to check out. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of your, uh, your next steps with element three, like what are you most excited about right now with the business and, uh, where are you drawing most of your inspiration from, uh this year, even mm-hmm. books you read or podcasts that
0: yeah so i'm I am um so we're about seventy people right now, and my role is changing from being um kind of a player coach to to just being a coach and um really getting comfortable with what does it look like to hold you know people wholesale accountable for the things that we're I've asked them to do. And it's more natural for me to be, like, in the trenches with everyone yeah. instead of, no, this is your job and it's that my job hard. to hold you accountable to do that thing. Um, so, yeah, in total transparency, that's that's something I'm, like, working through and, and being good and gracious in that, but also being firm and clear because we have um, – it's different when you're not the underdog, sort of scrapping your way to the top, like, I, I think I was more comfortable with uh, like everybody's counting us out like but watch me do it anyway I, I, that like totally fuels me and once you're I mean you're never really on top but once there's the illusion of you're kind of the market leader you ha- it's just a different way that you inspire yourself a different way that you need to lead your team and you know in Indianapolis there's not been an agency that's been over i mean I, it's kind of a tragedy that we're the largest agency in Indiana and we're only 65 or 70 people. I mean, it, this market, this state, this region can support a 200 person agency. We just haven't proven we can do that in Indianapolis. And so, in some ways, I feel like it's uncharted territory from here. And the way that we recruit talent from outside the state to come in, we know we've talked a lot about talent is a big piece for us. And how do I scale culture through my next line leaders? The future, the next seventy people, will be totally determinant on how strong my mid-level directors are. It actually, has very little to do with how good I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so, changing it from, are, am I doing good work? Do I understand what we do? Do I know how to log into the systems? Do, you know, do I know, you know? Am I ready for the client presentation? That was what my life looked like five years ago, and now it's are our <clears throat> excuse me, are our strategies aligned. Are my people on pace to their commitments? And um, does the next level down understand why we're doing the things that we're doing so that they can perpetuate and promote and continue to get that in a real homogenous way through the organization? And does
1: employer (coughs) brand change, uh, at least employer brand strategy, does that change where you are right now when you're going from player coach to more of just a coach and relying more on your uh, mid-level Leaders?
0: I think that it it changes in the sense that you have to have ways of making it so here's an example. So we've a best co are our values. That's the acronym. You all love acronyms, so I won't go through them, but a best co spells our values. We've always had definitions to our values and we've always had new employee onboarding. But over the last year or two, for some reason, these values just got completely misunderstood. And I was super irritated about that. And what I realized is what we need is we actually need, we have this thing now, it's called our core value speech, and it is written out, all of the backstory and the things that happened to get us there. And so that has to exist as an artifact now that we're 70 people, but at 20 people, that didn't matter because I was just talking to everyone. Yeah. So I think, you know, we talked about structure and the discipline of that. I think that's what starts to change. I don't think it's that the answer changes, but I do think it's that you have to be more intentional and you can't you can't reinvent it as much in your head once you get bigger as yeah. a leader. You have to say, no, I'm going to plant on this. And I have to say over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And and then they might hear it, you know? <laughs> right, um, right. And so I think startup entrepreneurs tend to like to reinvent things, sometimes for their own good, sometimes for the market's good. And I think that's a place where I've had to find discipline that's a little bit boring to me, Mm -hmm. if I'm being real honest. Sure. I want to, like, make it a little different because it would be fun. Right. But it's not relevant. It doesn't change the answer. And so um, I think there's a discipline around that that has come up as we've gotten bigger. Um, And I think that now that we're a little bit bigger, I see an important part of of giving back to our community in different ways and showing up in the way that I, I think market leaders should, you know, like take some responsibility and don't just take. Right. Um, so I think that's another place my head and heart are going.
1: Cool. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to watch you do it. Particularly excited to bring you to the powder keg stage on February 28th. Uh, you're going to be emceeing the whole show for the Marketing Tech event.
0: With you, I think, right? I
1: will be up there <laughs> a little bit, but I'm going to let you do your thing. You're, you you have so much more presence than me. Oh. You you are going to do a, an amazing job, and I've got your back okay. for sure. Um, but we've got some amazing guests that are coming to the stage. Scott McCorkle, the CEO and founder of MetaCX, mm-hmm. is going to be talking about that company for the very first time. They just raised $14 million pre-revenue, pre-product, and they're building something really amazing in the customer success space. Uh, Kyle Lacey, the VP of Marketing from Lessonly, is going to be sharing one of his best marketing campaigns that they've done over the last year or so um, on stage there. And then we have some other amazing companies who are going to be coming Uh, to share their stories. And thank you so much for being sort of our guide through that evening. Yeah, sure. It'll be really fun. It's going to be a blast. Um, I hope you'll come back to the show again soon. We have so much more to talk about. So that's it for today's show. For links to the rest of the people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to powderkeg.com and check out the show notes. While you're there, Hit up our events page and register for the MarTech Madness event. It is our biggest pitch night of the year, and it's in Indianapolis, Indiana on February 28th. Uh, And as I mentioned, Tiffany Sauter, today's guest, is going to be emceeing that evening. Amazing lineup of presenters. Uh, We're also going to have an amazing panel of advisors, including Bob Stutz, the CEO of Salesforce Marketing Cloud. To be among the first to hear about more of the stories uh, about these entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes, and we'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups.